Black Lives Matter's marches in towns large and small around the world. Thousands took to the streets in Osaka and Tokyo in recent weeks to decry racism, discrimination, and police violence targeting black communities in Japan and elsewhere. Yet, while the marches led to increased Japanese media coverage of racism and discrimination faced by non-majority Japanese communities in the country, some commentators outside of Japan used the demonstrations as a punchline, falling back on tired stereotypes of Japanese homogeneity for comedic effect. I mean, they're even coming out in Japan. They don't even have black people in Japan. Japan is basically saying, when we finally see a black person, we will welcome them with open arms. And as the whole of course, Japan is not now, nor has it ever been, homogenous. And needless to say, black people and black culture do exist in Japan. In fact, one common refrain on social media in the wake of the Black Lives Matter marches was the hypocrisy of Japanese infatuation with black culture and the racism many black people face in Japan. It's brought to mind questions about the popularity of black culture, music, and fashion in Japan, with Japanese popular musicians drawing heavily on black influences, ranging from hip-hop to reggae. And the Japanese reggae sound system Mighty Crown, regularly appearing in and even winning international reggae competitions. How does the popularity of reggae highlight racial difference in Japan? Where does the reggae scene in Japan fit within other representations of blackness in Japanese music and fashion? And finally, what explains the disconnect between Japanese infatuation with black culture and the discrimination faced by black people in the country? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the popularity of reggae and representations of blackness in Japan, I talked with Dr. Marvin Sterling, Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology at Indiana University Bloomington. Dr. Sterling is the author of Babylon East, Performing Dancehall, Roots Reggae, and Rastafari in Japan, published by Duke University Press in 2010. I started by asking Dr. Sterling to talk about how the popularity of reggae challenges stereotypes of Japanese homogeneity. So my research explores Japanese engagement with Jamaican popular culture as a way of understanding two sets of issues. One involves looking at this engagement with Jamaican popular culture as a way of understanding some key aspects of social identity in Japan. So things like nation, ethnicity and race, gender, class, regional differences, and so on. And so what I was interested in it was understanding how these Japanese reggae artists use reggae to, to speak to these kinds of social issues. The second thing I was interested in doing was using this Japanese engagement with Jamaican popular culture, things like roots reggae, dancehall, Rastafari, and so on, to understand how colonial, post-colonial, and contemporary global discourses of Blackness have come to circulate outside of the Western world. So that was one of the really remarkable things for me in the course of doing this research. What I was seeing was this idea of Blackness that wasn't one thing or another, but a really complex summation of all these different ideas of what Blackness is. So Blackness is subjugation at the hands of the Western world. Blackness as resistance to that subjugation. Blackness as this very kind of consumable thing that circulates all over the world, including in, in places like Japan, where there isn't a large population of people of African descent. 
And so in terms of these actual scenes themselves in the presence in Japan, maybe a good place to start is with the development of the scenes themselves. Roots Reggae has been in the country since the mid-1970s. It really took off in the mid-1980s to about the mid-1990s or so. Then dancehall reggae, I think, gained ascendancy starting in the late 1990s up until the present day, although it's tapered off a little bit um, in recent years, but all these scenes very much have a presence in the country. The vast majority of artists and religious practitioners in the case of Rastafari in Japan are Japanese or identify as Japanese. And, you know, your, your question speaks you know, very correctly to this perception that Japan is a homogenous society. So one of the statistics that we hear quite often is that Japan is comprised of an ethnic majority of about 98%. But those kinds of statistics, I find, are a bit misleading because it circumvents the opportunity to really think about, first of all, how that 98% came to be constituted, what it means, in other words, to define a group of people as an ethnic majority. And then the other question that I found myself thinking about was, what about that 2%, right? And so as with any project of nation building, it's always important to question how this idea of national identity came into being. And I mean, that's not you know, the central part of my research per se, uh, but I think in understanding what Rastafari and roots reggae and dancehall means in the Japanese context, it's really important to really think about the kind of the national space for the production and consumption of reggae music. And I think if we do take the story back historically, of course, there's this idea that Japan is, again, this homogenous society. But just to say, you know, just parenthetically, I think it's important for us to raise questions about this kind of discursive production of um, the national community in terms of things like language, regional differences, other forms of difference that you know come to be subsumed under this idea that Japanese people are all homogenous and all one people. And I think it's important to do that because of the exclusions that that kind of claim facilitates. The exclusion, for instance, of people of Korean descent, Japanese people who are of Chinese descent or of Ainu descent, for instance, because in the course of my research, I found Japanese reggae artists who are of Chinese descent, who are of Korean descent, who are Ainu and Burakumin and so on, who use reggae music as a way of speaking to, again, this assumption that Japanese people are all one thing without acknowledging the existence of other groups of people who don't fit as easily within this category of Japaneseness. And then in terms specifically of the African presence in Japan, so again, you have, you know, this kind of domestic difference in the form of Japanese people of Korean descent, Chinese descent, and so on. But since the 1970s, 1980s, and especially onward, you've had people arriving from other parts of the world to Japan, students, jet teachers, small business owners, entrepreneurs, and of course, musicians, including manual laborers, people who do the so-called 3K jobs, right? Kitanai, Kiken, and Kitsui, dirty, dangerous, and difficult jobs that many Japanese people didn't want to do. You know, this is at a time when the Japanese economy was really flourishing. And so during this period, again, beginning in the, you know, the 70s, you know, onward, 80s especially, you have this introduction of people from 
other parts of the world to Japanese society, including places like Peru and Brazil, where you have the descendants of Japanese people who migrated to these countries over 100 years ago, returning, so to speak, to Japan to take advantage of these opportunities presented by the Japanese government for people of Japanese descent to do these kinds of jobs. And also from other parts of the world, including Southeast Asia and so forth, but also certainly from places like Africa. And so Nigerians, Ghanaians, and others have very much a significant presence in Japan. Again, it's relative, right, to the fact that the vast majority of Japanese identify as part of the ethnic majority. But especially in places like Tokyo, you do have the noticeable presence of African-Americans, of course, and people from West Africa, then to maybe a lesser degree from the Caribbean, living in Japan, including um, Jamaica, where I'm, where I'm from, where you have, over the last few years, a number of people coming from Jamaica to work as part of the JET program, for instance, to teach English. And so in addition to these folks, you also have children who are the products of marriage between Japanese individuals and people of African descent. And so my current research explores the experiences of biracial Japanese people who are partly of African descent. So as Japan diversifies, right, it might be maybe relative to other countries, not a dramatic process. But with the aging of Japanese society, we do see an increased measure of diversity, racial and ethnic diversity being introduced into Japanese society. And so I think the presence of these individuals, um, they're kind of mixed race children. I think it, you know, with their presence, it's become increasingly difficult to just say, well, you know, Japan is a homogenous society and that there are no black people in Japan, because that's manifestly not the case. That's a great point about, you know, this is a reminder that Japan is, is certainly not homogenous. And you were talking about how these groups that prove the point of Japanese heterogeneity, such as people of Korean ancestry, Budokamine, Ainu, for example, and they've all really embraced reggae music. Right. And in your book, you were talking about Japanese-based musicians winning these international competitions. Right. So I wonder if you, you could talk a little bit about who those musicians are and why they chose reggae. I, and I think as a white American myself, you know, I think there's a tendency to think of reggae, oh, that's that kind of fun beach music. And you know, we think of Bob Marley and we don't really recognize how political Bob Marley was as a musician. Yeah. But what is it about reggae that you know, these marginalized communities really latched onto and embraced so much? Yeah. I think closer look at roots reggae music in particular would refute the idea that you're right. A lot of people have about roots reggae music as just kind of fun summertime music because roots reggae music is very heavily informed by Rastafari, which is an Afrocentric religious movement that emerged in Jamaica in the 1930s and that venerates the Ethiopian emperor Haile Selassie as that people's return messiah. And the music is very much an expression of dissent against colonialism, British colonialism in Jamaica. It is very much an expression of dissent against class inequality. It embraces the natural world as against the ways in which capitalism has led in many ways to the destruction of the natural world. And so all of these ideas are very much at play and very much a part of Rastafari as a religion and roots reggae as a music that embraces that religion. And so 
many Japanese people who I've spoken with who describe to me the nature of their love for the music. Of course, on a certain level, that love is about just love of music, right? They like the beat, you know, they describe it as very relaxing, very mellow, and so on. But among um, the smaller number of people who really kind of dug into roots reggae music, they hear this message of peace and love. They hear this message of anti-colonial resistance. They hear this message of anti-capitalism, and they're able to make a connection between those ideas as they play out in Jamaica and in Jamaican music and their own experiences in Japan. And so the precise nature of that connection with the music, of course, and the message of the music depends on what Japanese person we're talking about. And so, for example, I've met Japanese people who are Burakumin, you know, and so Burakumin belong to the kind of outcast group in um, Japanese society, subject to sometimes discrete, sometimes very explicit forms of discrimination even to this day. And so, you know, I've, I had one person, I think I described in the book, who said that his connection to reggae music was that it was this music that spoke to people who are oppressed, who um, have had to struggle. And of course, you know, he makes this creative linguistic connection that a lot of people have made before between Boraku and Black, right? And, you know, he kind of sees himself as connected to the experience of Black people by virtue of his Burakumin ancestry. And so, you know, for him, that's one way, one claim that he has over the music. I've met people who are of Korean descent, and so that anti-colonial message resonates with them quite profoundly. Mighty Crown is a Japanese sound system that competed in um, in the late 1990s in a major sound system competition in Brooklyn, where all the other competitors were Jamaican, and they won that event. And their victory has been celebrated as a Japanese victory in a subculture that is dominated by Black Jamaicans. And what's interesting to me in this is that they are Japanese, but they're um, Japanese who are of Chinese descent. And so that to me speaks to, you know, the, the really complex ways in which reggae music becomes this means by which diverse Japanese people, as opposed to this homogenous idea of Japanese people, are able to make, you know, very complex, varying political claims through this music that is you know, profoundly political in its own right. That's a fantastic point about how these communities in Japan see reggae as a way to express this anti-colonial, anti-capitalist resistance, much in the way that reggae was used in Jamaica. And, you know, really speaks to a level of sincerity and maybe genuine embrace of the spirit of reggae, which, you know, kind of, again, contradicts this idea of Japan is just kind of superficial copycats, right? right? This idea, one of the oldest stereotypes in the book is that Japan just copies everything without really understanding the nature of the soul of right. it. I think it was even uh, Winton Marsalis when he went to Japan. He's like, oh, you know, this Japanese jazz musicians, you know, they're just playing by the numbers. They don't really understand the soul of it. Right. But in this case, we're, we're getting a, people are really identifying with the music and the message of reggae and using it as a way to express their own political voices. Right. And maybe to some extent, that's a product of um, the focus of my research, because my research was focused on the practitioners, the folks who took it you know, quite seriously. Whereas, of course, there are many people who don't take it quite as seriously, who see it as fun. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that element as well, even as, of course, there are also folks who really labor to come to a deep appreciation of these different kinds of music coming out of Jamaica and Rastafari as a religious movement. That's an excellent reminder that there is some what we might think of as more superficial representations of blackness in Japan as well. Sure. 
when I first arrived in Japan, one of the things that surprised me was all the different kind of clothing styles in Japan. And one of them was what was called BK.、Mm-hmm. And it was everyone wearing Kangol hats. You know, women had cornrow braids, large hoop earrings. And there were even a number of major musical acts like Amuro Namie or M Flow, Chemistry, popularizing this hip hop music and, and what we might think of as black fashion. I mean, this is a different kind of representation of blackness than reggae, of course. But what is behind these different imaginations of black culture in Japan? So, blackness is a really complexly consumable idea in Japan. So, for example, if we're talking about Afro Jamaican blackness, there's still a tremendous degree of complexity there in terms of how you might go about expressing your identification with. Afro Jamaican blackness, right? So, for there is, for example, roots reggae, which might mean you dread your hair as part of some kind of rural naturalist、um, aesthetic, right? Again, derived very directly from Rastafari, the religious movement. Then there's dance hall, which maybe is more based in urban Kingston, maybe a little bit younger. And then there's dub music, which is more London based, and so on. And they all have their own look, their own kind of fashion, you know, aesthetic associated. With it, with each of these subcultures, and if you're if you're into hip hop, of course, hip hop itself is also quite complex, right? So there are all these different genres and subgenres within hip hop culture. Then, if you're into the cultures of continental Africa, right? Maybe then you're into like djembe drumming, which was a thing, you know, when I was doing my research back in the late 1990s. You know, so djembe drumming was part of this big so-called ethnic or ethnic boom, right? So you have All of these different subcultures with these different looks and styles and modes of consumption associated with them, and so to an extent, you're able to also make different ideological claims by identifying with you know all of these different groups. So I remember, for example, that a lot of the dancehall people were telling me that the roots reggae people, you know, their way of embracing black culture or Afro Jamaican culture was inappropriate, right? Because these Japanese dancehall fans and practitioners thought that it just wasn't right as a Japanese person to wear your hair in dreadlocks because that's black people's thing, right? And so there's a certain kind of claim or hesitation to claim blackness viewed specifically with regard to dread hair. And then you know they were also concerned about how, according to them, Japanese roots reggae musicians were stigmatizing reggae music generally by consuming marijuana, right? Then on the other hand, you have the roots reggae people saying, "Well, dancehall kids were just into talking about women and partying and so on," whereas they, as roots reggae people, were you know really serious about anti-colonialism, resisting you know the excesses of capitalism and so on. So all of this is to say that blackness in Japan is a way of maybe playfully or maybe not so playfully, you know, more seriously interrogating the assumption that as a Japanese person you need to act or look or you know conduct yourself in a certain way. Again, this assumption that many Japanese people themselves have, not all certainly, but that many Japanese people have of Japan as a homogenous society, right? But what's interesting is that this metaphor of blackness that they choose. Allows them to make that claim, that kind of resistance to Japan as homogenous, right? Blackness allows them to make that claim or to resist that idea of Japanese people as homogenous in very diversely、um, consumable ways. The blackness or the idea of blackness that operates in roots reggae music, dancehall music, Rastafari can be used by 
different kinds of Japanese people to make different kinds of claims, whether as Burakamin or as Ainu or as you know people of Chinese or Korean descent, they're able to latch on to the anti-colonial aspect of reggae music, the anti-capitalist aspect of reggae music. You know, that's that's a way in which the music speaks to them as as minorities in Japan. But majority Japanese are also able to make a claim to reggae music because the music allows them to, even if they identify as majority Japanese, right, there's a certain expectation that's placed on you as a majority Japanese person to act in a certain way, to conduct yourself um, in a certain way. And reggae music then becomes a way of saying no to that demand. You know, I'm wearing dreadlocks, so I clearly am not willing to acquiesce to the expectation that other majority Japanese people impose on me, that I conduct myself in a way that makes me recognizable to you as uh, another majority Japanese person. So again, this goes back to the point that Blackness facilitates different kinds of politics, even politics that might seem to be quite antithetical to each other. The politics of a people who are able to identify as part of the majority, but also the politics of people who are able to identify as minority Japanese. That's an absolutely fascinating point about how you know, or, or why certain groups in Japan and whether they're majority or non-majority are embracing not only reggae, but but even blackness in general. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I did see in response to the Black Lives Matter protests in Tokyo and Osaka, there were a lot of people on social media pointing out that there was a really frustrating disconnect between, you know, on the one hand, Japanese infatuation with reggae and with black culture, but on the other hand, experiences of discrimination and and even racism that they've experienced in Japan as well. So there does seem to be this kind of disconnect between those two things. And I mean, I'm even reminded of recent high profile cases of blackface in Japan, most notoriously by the popular comedian Hamada Masatoshi from downtown, uh, who was on this very popular TV show where he dressed up as Axel Foley from Beverly Hills Cop to the point of even putting blackface on. And this raised all sorts of questions in the media, like why is blackface bad in Japan? All these kinds of conversations. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on this disconnect? On the one hand, we have infatuation, but on the other hand, maybe it is embracing going a little too far in some cases. Yeah, yeah I appreciate the question. Um, I went to the Black Lives Matter march um, in Tokyo a couple of Sundays ago. And you know, saw quite a few of, of these signs in which the protesters were pointing precisely to this disconnect, right? And so one sign, for example, said, "Love black people like you love black culture." Wow, that's a that's a very powerful yeah, sign. Yeah, yeah, and and like I said, there were more than one. I only got you know a chance to write down the text of two signs. There could have been more. I'm sure there were, but the second sign said similarly, "If you love black culture, protect black people." Right. And so I think these signs are, are, again, speaking exactly to this disconnect between this embrace of Black culture on the one hand, but on the other, there's a certain kind of insensitivity that can present itself in terms of how that embrace takes place. So, you know, the march itself was was really striking for me because while that kind of very consumable idea of blackness, blackness is cool, blackness is Axel Foley or whatever, right? Blackness is hip hop and so on, right? So that idea of blackness can very comfortably be allowed into spaces like Shibuya where, you know, the march took place. 
But this march is different, right? Because this is a march with a reported 3,500 or so people in attendance, you know, saying things like, I can't breathe, you know, Black Lives Matter. And so this is a very kind of different, more overtly politicized idea of Blackness that you don't often get to see in these kinds of spaces, right? You know, you might see, you know, an image of, let's say, Eddie Murphy or Mike Tyson or Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or LeBron James, right? You might see those representations of Blackness, right, of representations of hip-hop artists, but not like the signs that we were seeing in this march, which really calls attention not just to Black culture, but to Black people and the violence being perpetrated on the bodies of Black people. So, you know, I'm looking at young people for the most part, um, young people of African descent increasingly arriving to Japan, and also allies of people of African descent, bridging that gap between this embrace of the culture, but indifference at best, disdain in some cases, directed towards the people who produce this culture, right? So, so this disconnect that we see between this easily consumed mass mediated idea of blackness as a kind of you know the prerogative of Japanese people to, to just casually consume these ideas of blackness right on the one hand and then on the other this more overtly politicized idea of blackness that's at the core of how black people understand ourselves right that tension I think will increasingly be more and more pronounced as more and more black people come to live in Japan raise families in Japan, give birth to biracial children, right? So so I think, you know, I continue to hope that, again, even though they're not at this moment a large number of Black people in Japan, those assumptions about Blackness, you know, will increasingly become interrogated. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.